So for the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of grace. And by the way, we've got the book, The Unlimited Grace, that's available. Um, it's a great read by Brian Chappell to pick up. But we've been talking about this idea of grace and this idea of how do we get right standing before God, which I think is a question that both Christians and non-Christians you should be asking. How do we have right standing before God? And what we have found is that the way that we, we, we get God's favor or we have right standing before God is not by anything that we have done. We can't, we can't earn it. When God says, I, I bestow on you my, my righteousness, I will take your unrighteousness and I will give you my righteousness, there's nothing that we could have done that would ever, that would ever give us that position or that favor. And so we've talked a lot about this idea that you have, you have God's favor. If you are in Christ, you have the favor of God on you, not because of anything that you have done, because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. And so if that's how we obtain God's favor, then the question I think naturally lends itself to then how do we maintain God's favor? How do we stay in God's good graces? If we didn't get into his good graces by, by, by works, the question then becomes, how do we stay in his good graces? And I would say that I think the scriptures teach the exact same thing about how we got it, is that it's by grace and not by works. And so this idea that a lot of times I think what happens is that we, we come to faith by grace and not by works. We know that. But then we slowly moved into this, this works-based salvation over time. I but what keeps God's good favor of me, the reason why God looks at me and smiles is because I do good things. And when I don't do good things, he looks at me and he's angry again. And I go, that's just not the picture that we see in the Bible. So then the, the question becomes, if I don't stay in God's good graces because of what I do, then the natural question is, then why do good things? What's the motivator for good works? Because it's actually, is a great motivator to say if you do good things, God will be happy. If you do bad things, God's going to be angry with you. That's a great motivator. Keep God happy. As I said, don't make baby Jesus cry, right? I mean, keep him happy. Do, do those sorts of things. That's a great motivator. The problem is, is that's not the motivator we get in the scriptures. And so it's not the motivator that we can build our lives upon. And so last week I submitted to you this idea that one of the great motivators is this idea that because now we are in Christ, our identity is in him. And so why would we do good things? Because we serve a good God and because his goodness is on us. And when we do the works that God has laid out for us, we are actually carrying out our identity, our true identity. It's one of the great virtues of our culture our secular culture is to live out your identity live out your identity with truth and integrity to which i would say yes amen hallelujah preach it secular culture with one huge caveat right that that means that your true identity is not something that you find internally personally like like your own identity but the identity that you find that is in christ that's why paul says seek and set the things that are above because that's where christ is that's where your life is that's where your past and your so your, your your present and your future all lie within christ and so that's a great motivator live out your true identity and this morning i'm going to give you 
another motivator of why we should do good works. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me. This morning we're going to come out of Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in chapter 5. I know your bulletin says 6. I backed it up a few verses uh, after submission for the bulletin. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 5, verse 18. Before we jump into this really fast, is that I want you to, there's, there's this conversation that's happening in 5, that what, what Paul has says is that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And then sin was taken away by one man, Jesus. You were born into Adam, but now you're called into Jesus. And so now identify more with, before you used to identify with Adam, now I want you to identify with Jesus. So that's kind of the, the conversation we're jumping into. This is what he says in 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for, of all, for all men, he's referring to Adam, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. He's referring to Jesus. Four, as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace, might, might, sorry, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he says where the, where the law increased, sin increased. As, as, as there's more laws introduced into, to think about this culture, as more laws are introduced, they go, oh, I used to do that, but now there's a law against that. So now if I were to do that same behavior, because now there's a law, I'd be breaking the law. And so he says where law increases, sin increases. And so as he's talking about this law increases, sin increases, is that then sometimes people go, well, just get rid of the law, right? Then sin goes away. The problem is it doesn't. In fact, maybe you even feel like this is how you feel about coming to church. You go, the reason why I don't go to church is because all they tell me about is what to do. And then I feel bad about myself. And I don't need to go to church to feel bad about myself. Already, I felt bad about myself at home. I can do that in the privacy of my own home. And I don't need to go to church for them to tell me that I'm not a good person because I already know that and I can do that at home. And one of the things that you're saying, right, is this idea that where the law increases, so do the trespasses. And so sometimes people go to church and all they walk away with is despair because all the church did was increase the law, increase the law, increase the law. And led everyone in a place of despair. Maybe you've walked out of church service and go, I, I, feel, I feel horrible about myself. With, with no hope. And you go, what happened was all they did was increase the law but did nothing with grace. And what Paul says here, he goes, where the law increases, so does, so does sin. But here is the beautiful thing. Paul's intention is not to leave you in a place of despair. But this idea that that sin can never outpace grace, right? It's one of the great truths of the New Testament, that sin can never outpace grace. What he says is that as grace, as sin increased, what happened was, was, was grace increased all the more. And so sin went up, so the law came in, sin went from zero to 60, and then grace was at a 70, 75, 100. Like there was, it just, and as, as sin increased, grace increased. 
Now, this is true not only of your story, by the way, of your story, but this is true of the world. As even as we look around the world, we go, ah, sin is increasing. And we go, oh, may God's grace abound all the more. And here's the problem, right? Is that the more that sin increases, the more that grace abounds, the more that God is glorified. Because the grace of God, as we see in the scriptures, the grace of God magnifies the glory of God. So here's, the, here's what Paul's laying out. As sin increases, grace increases. And as grace abounds, as grace, gra- the, what the grace, the grace of God does is, is it magnifies the glory of God. And maybe this has ever happened if you've ever heard like somebody's testimony. And they'll say, before I came to Christ, let me tell you about my life. And they will lay out like sin upon sin. Where you, and you think to yourself, man, I thought I was bad. Like this guy over here, this is, and then he'll say, then I came to Christ after all of that junk, all of that stuff. I've come to Christ and Christ has done a work in me and now I'm different. And we go, oh, what we're saying here is that the grace of God. So the sin increased, grace of God magnified the glory of God. Now this is going to leave us in a very natural problem. And this is the exact problem that we're going to deal with this morning. And it's the exact question that Paul asks next. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have, di- who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. And so where sin increased, grace abound all the more. And as the glory of God, sorry, the grace of God magnifies the glory of God, the the, the natural thing is like, well then, man, the more I sin, the more God is glorified. I think one of the great truths of the Bible is this this idea that your sin is greater than you know. It's more destructive than you know. But the grace of God is also greater than you know. And so Paul answers this next logical step where we would go is that, man, the more I sin, the better God looks. Like that's why that's why we have those testimonies, right? Man, look how bad you looked, and it makes God look great. And maybe even like your testimony isn't as bad as like some other people. And so even on this moment to glorify God more, you may you may embellish some things of your testimony, make things worse than they really were, just so that God would be glorified. Why? Because where sin increased, grace abounds, and where grace abounds, God is glorified. And so then there's this idea that, well, then maybe, maybe we should just continue on sinning. This, this could be a beautiful relationship. I love to sin. <laughs> God loves to give grace. I get to do what I love to do. God gets to do what he loves to do. And he is glorified and magnified. And what Paul says is, right, go ahead and do that. No, he says, may it not be. May it not be. That, that's a horrible conclusion. And what happens is actually, what things happens here is that what happens is when we take truth in isolation, we typically get bad application. 
right? Whenever we take truth in isolation, we end up with bad application. And so um, what he's doing here, he's going, don't take this truth in isolation that where sin, where sin abounds, sorry, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more and God is glorified. Don't take that truth in isolation because if you do, you're going to end up with really bad application. It's like, I like French toast. That's the truth of me. I love it. It's good. All things were considered equal. I would have it all the day, all the days of my life. Problem is, all things aren't equal, right? And there's a truth about me is that I love French toast, but I can't apply that every day. Because if I apply that every day, there's going to be another application of something that I don't like, <laughs> right? It's going to have its effects on me. Or maybe somebody found out that, you know, at one time you said, you know, I, oh yeah, I really like that TV show. And they took that one truth about you. And then every time you see them, they talk about how much you like that show. And then every time they buy you a gift or something like that, it has to do with that show. You go, I said it one time. It was one truth. Like there are other things that are true about me. So whenever we take truth in isolation, we end up with bad application. This also happens, by the way, when people say, well, the God is love. God is love. God is love. And then they take that truth, they redefine love, and then they give all sorts of, I would think, to be horrible applications. And so it's going to be interesting that what, what Paul's going to do here, he's going to say, we have this truth where sin increases, Grace abounds all the more and God is glorified. That is a truth. But what we're going to do now is we're going to let other truths form this truth and tell us what we should do with it and how we should interact with it. And notice this morning how often he's going to say things like, we know, we believe, we know this. And what he's saying is here, we're allowing this other truth to come in and help us form and shape this truth. And so he says, may it not be. May not be. And so he uses this, this idea, this, this illustration of baptism. I don't think he's necessarily referring to the act of baptism. You know, when we do the baptisms down, I think he's referring to the meaning of baptism. The, we say that baptism is a proclamation of something that's already true, and that baptism is the baptism of identification. I identify with Jesus publicly. And so when somebody's baptized, they get baptized in this idea, I'm going to now publicly proclaim to friends and family and strangers, much like you do, like professing someone's love at a wedding, right? I'm going to proclaim now to, to the world that I, 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 I identify with Jesus in his death. I identify with Jesus in his burial. I identify with Jesus in the resurrection. This is the idea, right, when we do a baptism. It's, it's down, you, you die, you're in the watery grave, and then you rise again. That's the identification. And what Paul is saying here, he goes, we identify and we, we proclaim his death, we proclaim his baptism, we proclaim the, uh, sorry, the burial and the resurrection. And really the baptism is this, this representation of this journey, right, from death into life. That's what it is. You die to the old self. The old self is buried and then you raise to this newness of life. And so what Paul is interesting where Paul says, I'm going to answer this question. Why should we should we just continue on sinning that grace may abound? No. Why? Because we have identified it in a new way. We've, we have died to something and now we're alive to something else. That's why we don't do this. And then he goes on in his explanation in verse 5 and 7. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
certainly we we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so he says, we, if we have died here, right? We have died. We, we died here. We are going to live here. Not only did Christ die for you, but, but something died in us on the cross. And so this idea that something has died in us so that for the purposes of so that something else may live in us. That's what he's getting at. And he goes, and if we have identified with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The resurrection was to something, and the resurrection was to this new life. He died to sin, our sin, not his own sin. He was, he was sinless. He died to sin, was buried, conquered the grave, and now is raised to this newness of life. So that, this is what it tells us, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. No longer enslaved. Is that how you feel? Do you feel like the, the sin in your life has been brought to nothing? Like, yeah, you know, actually, Josh, I'm the way over this morning. I was driving in the car. I thought to myself, you know what? The major sins in my life, they have been brought to nothing in Christ. <laughs> Probably not your experience. Wasn't my experience, and I had already prepped for the sermon. Uh, wasn't my experience. This idea of brought to nothing, actually the, the word that it might be brought to nothing is actually all one word. Is this idea of, of uh, uselessness. It's inoperative. And it's, it's no longer relevant to, due to inactivity. That's the idea of this brought to nothing. It's no longer relevant due to inactivity. I thought about maybe some of you who have uh, tape players still in your house, right? You have a tape player in your house. It's like... There is probably maybe, or a CD player now, right? Or a CD, I have a CD player in my house. And I go, it might, like there probably was a day when you would, you would use that every single day. And now all it does is just sit and collect dust. And why? Well, you know, it's become sort of useless to you. And it's inactivity. It's not because, oh, you know what? I really wanted to listen to the CD player, but I just like, nope, not today, not today. You just don't, it just isn't effective anymore. It doesn't do what it's set out to do. Like it doesn't, it's not helpful. And so it becomes inactive. It's brought to nothing due to inactivity. That's what he's talking about here. So this idea that sin, sin actually loses its activity. It loses its usefulness. It doesn't do anything for you anymore. That's what he's getting at. It's not this idea. We think that the great struggle for the Christians is to really, really want to do something that God says no, and then we don't do it. And I go, that's good. But what's even better than that, that's not even the goal of the scriptures. The, what he says is actually, no, that's not even going to be the, 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 your experience in relationship ultimately with sin. Your experience ultimately with sin is like, it's just useless to you. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's inactive. It has no, it has no purpose. It loses its functionality. But not only does it lose its functionality, it loses its sovereignty. That's what he says there in the last part. So that going, you know, with this is, this is six. 
so that it might be brought to nothing so that so it becomes it loses its functionality so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin it loses its sovereignty so what is god trying to do in you with sin well he's trying to bring it to nothing it loses its usefulness it loses its functionality and it loses its sovereignty it's no longer useful and it doesn't reign over you. That's what God is trying to do. But the problem is, that's not my experience. It's probably not your experience, right? And so he says that it loses its functionality. It loses its sovereignty. It no longer has dominion over you. And so you need to, for one, this is verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, you need to, and this is what we begin at, you need to consider yourself the same way. You need to view yourself in the same way that you view Jesus. Interestingly enough, outside of like the fact that he's God and flesh, that's not us, but outside of that, we're supposed to see ourselves in the same way that we see Jesus. The problem is we see Jesus, whoa, and we see ourselves, whoa right i'm way down jesus but this is me woe is me and he goes actually i want you to consider the things that are true about jesus the things that are true about you why that's crazy because that's why it's crazy that's why it's amazing crazy consider the things that are true about jesus to be true about you do you consider the things to be true about jesus to be true about you and what we would say about Jesus is for Jesus is, is that sin doesn't have a functionality and it has no sovereignty over him. And so this is what he's, this is the case that he's building to answer the question, why should we not just continue on in sin that grace may abound? May it not be so. Why? Because we who have died in sin, how can we continue to live in it? What God has done, what Jesus did on the cross was to, to take away the usefulness of sin and the sovereignty of sin. That it was brought to nothing and you were no longer enslaved to it. In sin, we see death and slavery. In God, we see life and freedom. And we see this even more than in verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that also, we will also live with him. We know, we see this, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. And so he's saying, like I said, once again, the things that are true about you the things that are true about Jesus are true about you. And you need to consider yourself in the same way. Death has lost its sovereignty. Death has lost its functionality. Death is sin and, sorry, sin is death and slavery. In God, we see life and freedom. Then verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. 
but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now here's what's crazy, I think. There's a lot of times when we read this passage, all we hear is verse 12. Let therefore sin not reign in your mortal body, make you obey his passions. Verse 13, don't present your members uh, to sin as instruments of, for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So we, we do that because that's what you go at. So go out and do these things. Don't do these things. Go do these things. And that's all that we hear. But then we miss the argument that that's like, therefore, because of what I have just said, all of that is based on something. And here's the conclusion. Stop pursuing sin and pursue the things of God. Don't let sin, don't, don't let it reign over you and don't let it be useful to you. And so why don't we, why, to answer the question, why don't we sin so that grace may abound? And what Paul answers this question, he says, because, I'll tell you why you don't do that. You don't do that because sin, sin is death and slavery. And in God, we're given life and freedom. And for you to continue on in sin so that grace may abound is to you for you to continue on in sin is to continue to pursue death and to pursue slavery. Now, I would say that it's a tragedy, the, the slavery in the world, historically and even right now. Anytime there's slavery in the world, that's a tragedy. But I'll tell you what's, what's, what's a worse tragedy than that. There's people who have been freed from slavery that return to slavery. And I think what, what, what Paul's setting you up for, he goes, this, this, is, this would be insane. But God would be glorified. Well, yeah, but God's glorified when you have life. Right? He's glorified that way too. When you're, when you're, when you're freed and you're, you're walking around as a free man or a free woman and you have life, God is glorified in that. And I would submit he's even more glorified in that than he's glorified when his grace abounds. And yet, we do. And so, sin is death and slavery. In God, we are given, by the grace, we are given life and freedom. And so Paul's answer really is, in what crazy world do you live in where you would want to pursue death and slavery when life and freedom are given to you as an option and have been secured for you? Now here's the problem. Here's the real problem. Is that you probably don't believe that. Now, if I were to give you an exam, you know, Christianity 101, and first question, true or false? True or false? True or false? Sin, the pursuit of sin is death and slavery. The pursuit of God is life and freedom. You would go, that is a true statement. But the problem is we would get that right there and we would get that wrong everywhere else. 
You know, people think that the great hypocrisy of Christianity is that Christians believe one thing and they do another. Oh, look at the hypocrites. They proclaim this and then they go out and they do this. To which I would say, well, actually, uncomfortably so, uh, that's not the great hypocrisy of Christianity. The great hypocrisy of Christianity is that we say that we believe this and we don't actually even believe it. Now, is that condemning, convicting? For sure. But that's not to be shaming. So hear me on this. So I, I want you to hold this. Even if you're not a Christian, you go, oh, yeah, well, the, the Christian, those Christians, they, 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 they say they believe one thing, they go out and do another. And I'm actually saying, no, it's worse than that, actually. It's actually worse than that. We say that we believe something we don't actually even believe. Now, there may be a, a, a conviction in that, as there should be, but let me give you an encouragement of that, is that that's something that will always be true of you. And the reason that will always be true of you is because what God's truth his scripture is far more beautiful and, and, and deep and all-consuming than our ability to uh, apply and understand it will ever be. And so I can tell you this is like, as I grow in my, my, my hopefully my, my maturity, is that there's still things that I go, man, I understand the, the depth of God's word, hopefully more and more. I go, man, the more beautiful this is, the, the more and more. Like, there will always be this discrepancy. And so... We think, yes, death and sin, sorry, sin is death and slavery. In God, I'm given freedom and life. And like, I could say that, but, but you, don't, you don't act that out. I don't live that out. You don't live that out. To which you go, no, 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 I, I do. Like, I, I, there's two things I can give you. Two things, I can give you more. I'm going to give you two things this morning that are going to, to show you that this is true about you. It's true about me. The first one is this, is that, is that your, your, your envy slash frustration with other people who are engaging in the behavior in which you're trying to abstain from. In other words, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because God has said don't do that. And so I'm not going to do that. And then you see somebody else doing it and engaging in it. And quote unquote, getting away with it, and you think to yourself, man, that must be nice. God's like, I don't want you to be angry. Not in the way that rage comes out and you hurt people. And you're like, all right, I'm going to work on that. You try so hard not to get angry, not to lose your cool, not to lose your temper. And then somebody comes along and they just light right into you. And they get to say whatever they want to say. They get to to do whatever they want to do. And you're mad because you go, it's not fair. It's not fair that they get to do that and I have to do this. Or God's like, I want you to be generous. With your with your money, I want you to be generous with your money. All right. <laughs> then you see somebody else that gets to be greedy, consumeristic. They buy the things that they want to buy. And they th- they don't think twice about somebody else, and they come around showing you what they just got, and you think to yourself, "Man, must be nice." It's not fair, right? It's not fair. Or maybe God says, I want you to tell the truth. 
but you know that in telling the truth and being honest, that the, with that's going to come some consequences. And so you do that, and then somebody else lies, and they don't have the consequences. And then you think to yourself, must be nice. Why do they get, like, they get away with it? By the way, you're not the first person to think this. You can read the Psalms where they're like, why did the wicked prosper? But my question to you, that if we, if you really do believe that pursuing sin is death and slavery and pursuing life, as pursuing God is, is freedom and life, then my question to you is, what exactly are they getting away with? Those guys. They get to be enslaved. They get to enslave themselves with lies and greed. And then here I am, here I am pursuing life. Being free of, 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 of the traps of money, of the traps of, of lies. Here I am free in the truth. <laughs> That's not fair. You see how crazy this sounds? But this is me. This is you. And by the way, it's belief in this that allows us to look at a world not with envy and not with anger, but one of empathy. You know, I, I hear people right now that are like, man, you know, they, they, just, they want condemnation to come on the world because of its actions. Oh, there's like this sense of frustration within Christianity. Here we are trying to, to live our lives this way and then they get to do whatever they want and get away with it. And I go, really, if we thought that sin was death and slavery, we would look at the world with brokenness and empathy, by the way, which is what Jesus does. You guys are entrapped and you don't even know it. You're pursuing death and you're actually selling death as if it's life and you don't even know it. That was the, that was one. <laughs> here comes, here comes. If, if, there, if that wasn't enough to prove to you that this is true of you, it's true of me, then here, I got a second one for you. The other one is that, how do I know that this is true of you? That you think, that you don't think that pursuing sin is death and slavery and that pursuing God is life and freedom. The second one is that you keep returning to it. You keep going back to it and going back to it. Can, can, can I tell you probably, you think about like, think about like, like what's, what's the sin that you've been wrestling with? And I, I, can, I can tell a pattern for you, right? Because I'll, I'll give you the, the pattern of sin. You engage in it, right? You're convicted of it. Like, like this, this moment possibly. Uh, like you're convicted of it. You resolve not to do it. Then you are tempted. The temptation overcomes the resolution. And then you engage in it. And then you're convicted of it. Then you resolve not to do it. Then you're tempted by it. And that temptation overcomes the resolution and then you engage in it. And by the way, the destructive pattern that this goes on 
is that all of those steps become more and more intense, intense, intense as it spirals downward, right? The engagement gets more intense. The conviction becomes more intense. Then the resolution becomes more intense. And then the temptation comes even more intense. And downward and downward we go. And so you keep returning to it. And I would say you keep returning to it because it's doing something for you. Now hear me on this. It's much easier to look at sin and go, oh yeah, I sin, I sin, but you know, it's just, I, it's just a thing. It's much more problematic to look at sin and say, you know what, I do that because it's doing something for me. Do you guys, any of you guys have, have a friend, maybe you, maybe you are the friend or have had a friend that keeps on returning back to an unhealthy relationship, right? They start dating this guy, you're like, oh, no, 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 not that guy, not him. And you maybe even have the conversation with them, like, you, you know, like, you know they're not good for you, right? And they may even say, yeah, no, I know that, I know that. But, and what are they going to give you? All of the reasons why the good outweigh the bad. I know that that's true. And you're like, no. And then one day you get the phone call. And they say, we, we broke up. You're like, I've been praying for this. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. And you may even have a conversation. And then and she will say things like, oh, it was, it, was, it was worse than you knew. You know, you only knew this. It was worse than that. But I'm so glad that I'm out of that. I'm free of that. You're like, ah, yes, we can be friends again. Like, this is exciting. And then you get the other call. That says, oh, we're, we're back together now. And you're like, no. And you have the exact same conversations, except for now they're worse. Because now you have all the information from before. And then their, their excuses are greater. Like, but, but now the, the, he, he, these things, are, you know, whatever it is. Interesting is that you can see that in them. But you can't always see that in yourself. And what you have to come to the conclusion of, of about your friend or about yourself is that they keep on returning because they think that, that there lies something that they can't find anywhere else. Now that's a hard reality. And what you have to work with your friend about is what is it you're finding here that you don't think you can find anywhere else? You see, it's a fine motivator to think to yourself, oh, don't sin. Don't sin because it makes baby Jesus cry. Much more difficult to think about don't sin because because sin is to pursue death and slavery. And there's something inside of me that wants it. That's more, much more problematic. And so this is what I want you to do. 
I want you to think about your sin, whatever it may be. I want you to think about it in a new light, a new lens. And I want you to answer two questions that may not even come to you in a week. And it may not even come to you by yourself. Like you may have to actually bring, shockingly enough, you may have to bring other people in on this conversation. You might have to ask a trusted friend, a spouse, this question. But the first question is this. Whatever that sin is, how, like, what, what sort of life do I think it's giving me? What sort of freedom is it offering me? So how is my sin offering me life? And you can like, oh, I know that's not true, but no, don't even get to that yet because, of course, it's a lie. How is it offering you life? And what kind of freedom is it offering you? I hear this people all the time that they engage in freedom, but I felt so alive. I felt so free. If only for a moment. I was free of the pain. Only for a moment. What kind of life is it offering you? And what kind of freedom is it offering you? And the same thing true about your sin. Is this, this is the sec- that's the first question, by the way. That's the first question. Second question is this. How is your sin entrapping you and killing you? You see, the motivator to do the works of God is not because he's angry at this, he's happy at this. The, one of the, the motivation that Paul gives us is because this is death and slavery. And if you don't see that, you need to spend some time to figure out how that is death and slavery. And this in God is life and freedom. And your sin is offering you the life and freedom. That's the problem. And you need to see the death, you need to see the slavery, and you need to see how its offering of freedom and life is a lie. And once you do that, you might have a great motivator to pursue the life and to pursue the freedom which Christ has freed you for. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. God, I just think about all of the places and where, where us as a community, individually, corporately, where we are pursuing death and slavery as if it's life and freedom. This week, may your spirit convict us and, and show us how, how the pursuit of our sin is death and slavery. Show us the lies of its promising us freedom in life. Show us the reality of its, of its, of its death and enslavement. And may we, as followers of you, may we not willingly and freely re-enslave ourselves and pursue death when life and freedom have been offered to us. May we not look at the world caught in sin or those around us enslaved in sin. May us not look at them in envy. May we look at them and have empathy. We thank you that your grace is far, far greater than our sin. And it's by your grace that we are even offered the life and the freedom. We thank you, Jesus. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.